I mean, the cursing is the thing that I adapted, you know, because I always learned in, in counseling, like, talk like the people that you work with, and that can be, that's great, but it doesn't really work in the convent. <laughs> Welcome to Belmont Voices. My name is Jack Benz, and I'm your guide to some of the stories of some of the people in one small New York neighborhood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Belmont Voices. Today's episode, I get to talk to Sister Mary Catherine Redman, who is a Catholic religious sister. She's part of the Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose mission is to help the poor and needy around the world. She uh, does a variety of things. She is um, a pastoral minister with the Christian Life Communities at Fordham Campus Ministry. But she's also, this is her main work, is working as a physician's assistant in North Central Bronx Hospital. She has a whole range of stories about her work and about her life in the Bronx. And we started the conversation with asking her how she actually got into this work of becoming a physician's assistant. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. I majored in hearing and speech science and psychology in college and went on for my master's in audiology and counseling Um, and then worked as an audiologist and then entered religious life, which then made me move to New York City. Okay. Um, And worked for 10 years at NYU Medical Center down in Manhattan as a senior audiologist. And during that time was my religious formation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did take some time off during my time at NYU and spent some time in Guyana, South America, a summer with three of our sisters in Guyana, South America. I don't think there's anything more transformative than being other. Mm. And that's what Guyana did for me. And to see the level of health care there, and we were at the better hospital because it was a Catholic hospital, St. Joseph's, um, in Georgetown, um, to see the level of medical care was sobering for me. And so when I came back to my position at NYU, you know, I remember walking up to the hospital and being like, how is it that this, there's such disparity? And then became much more aware of the homeless on the street as I, because there's a men's shelter right by NYU on 1st and 30th, and became much more aware of the homeless that I encountered each day as I was going to work. I knew our patients were not getting, um, were not the people that were on the street, Right. you know. And the other contrast for me, which I struggled with, was that the richer people were, the more we gave them breaks. I had one experience when I was working there. Um, We did monitoring for children who were receiving chemotherapy. And um, the grandmother came down with this child. She didn't speak any English. But the grandchild said to me, the little boy who was like nine years old, he said, my grandmother has a problem with her ears. Can you take a look? So I looked in and she had wax in her ears, which is very simple to fix. 
but I was an audiologist, so I wasn't in a position to help her, you know, take the wax out. So I asked one of the docs I work with, I said, can you take the wax out of this woman's ears? And he goes, well, I'd have to have a chart, and, you know, I'd have to charge her. And I said, okay. I said, um, and what would the charge be? And he said, well, my office visit is $75. And I said, okay. So I went home that night, and I was sharing in prayer how upset I was by that, you know, because I certainly didn't have $75 to, to pay for it. Um, and I was sharing how upset I was, and after prayer, we talked as a house. There were four of us living in the house, and we talked, and everybody threw in their money, and then we came up with like $40, and then the house paid $35. And the next day, I called up to the floor, and I said, could you please send this woman down? And they sent her down. We got her wax taken out. I gave him the check for $75, and he was like, no, no. And I'm like, oh, no, please take your payment, you know. And later on that day, I came back to my office after seeing somebody, and there was a bunch of app of bananas on my desk that oh. was her thank you, you yeah. know? and like and it was just all part of the discernment that I was really called to serve the poor so I asked the community if I could go back to school to become a physician assistant and um, and they said yes and the rest is history and you started then working uh, in the Bronx or wherever yes. you were sent so I did my two years of schooling and then was looking for a job, and then I was adjunct at the at the PA school, and one of the faculty members said to me, oh, my friend Kevin's looking for some a PA up at North Central. He, she said, why don't you go up for an interview? And I was like, I don't have a job, so I should go for the interview. I walked into the emergency department, which looked like something out of the 70s, and still <laughs> does, 20 years later. Um, and just the variety of people, the the cultures and the 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 care, the feel that I got when I walked in there, I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. What draws you in that situation? Like you walked into the emergency room. D does curiosity draw you or compassion or a mix of both? Or are you, are you kind of like adventure or you just think of the energy around what's happening or? I think it was kind of, everyone always says there's something different about our place when they walk in. It's got like a family feel to it, um, which it does. It's a small, it's more like a community hospital in the middle of the Bronx, which is really kind of, but I would say it was a compassion. I mean, it, it was obvious that those people were poor and, and just the looks on their face were, um, were needy, like desiring for something, yeah. you know? And I was just like, this is it, you know? So the majority of our patients are uninsured, sure. recent immigrants, Medicaid. Um, they are people who are day laborers. They're people who work in, you know, health, um, food service. And they don't get benefits like we get benefits. and they may have something that could simply be treated by an antibiotic sure. and they will go on and on and on because their family will not have food on the table 
they'll go on because they have a handicapped child at home they have to take care of or an elderly parent they have to take care of. They'll go to the corner bodega because that's what they do in their country and whoever's in the bodega will give them a couple of pills that they don't even know the name of mm -hmm. but they know the color. So by the time they come for care they've already taken something that you then try to match because the, the full course of an antibiotic is better than taking shots in the dark. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, and it is, the, you know, there are a lot of women religious who are in emergency medicine as physician assistants. Basically, it's where the poor go for their medical care. Right, and so that's yeah. where y'all wanna be. And so when you started working here, Mm -hmm. uh, that was 20 years ago? Yeah, 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. Have things changed or the people changed or? I think the needs definitely have changed. Like I'm thinking about my neighborhood where I live, which is very similar to where I work. Um, I only live three miles from the hospital, so I live with the people I work with. I think my neighborhood is different, but I think my neighborhood is different because I, now I know my neighbors, and I think that that's an important thing, um, really, to get to know people, and I know them because I do yard work, and so I'm out, like, trimming the bushes or cutting a lawn, and I see my neighbors and stop and talk to them, and I've gotten to know them, seeing their ch take their children to school and things like that. In the hospital, um, it's definitely changed because so many more people now are hired um, without benefits. So now we're seeing more of the working poor, okay, whereas people um, or people that were just laid off right. where they don't have insurance and now need to get their medicine that they've been on. Right. So that's more of who we're seeing in addition to the population. So I would say definitely our ER visits have increased for that reason. And how do you, as a member of a religious order, but also in the work that you do, mm -hmm. how do you continue to maybe challenge in yourself or the people around you the notion of the poor? Because mm -hmm. right now I think there's, at least I've been kind of dragged unwillingly into mm -hmm. some word games about like we don't call them the poor we call them impoverished people mm -hmm. because the poor don't really exist as a mm -hmm. as a monolithic group mm -hmm. uh, is mm -hmm. that more just personal relationships again and it's all relationships yeah. and that's why you know um, I it's a big joke at work like because and it's a joke in the community too because if you open the trunk of the car that I drive it's full of like men's underwear socks t-shirts you know some clothing my my brother-in-law said to me on vacation when he's packing the trunk he goes mayor I'm not going to ask you why you have men's underwear in the trunk of your car I'm like you don't want to know but well, the, I do yeah right <laughs> why but the reality is you know like if you're homeless and on the street you know like you don't pay to wash your clothes like you basically wear them until you get a new set sure you know yeah. so when patients come in often their clothes are dirty and we give them a new pair of underwear and pants and yeah a lot of people walk out of the emergency department looking like my father you know because <laughs> I've taken his clothes um, but you know the reality is um, it's all those things and like the staff will joke, they'll say, oh, go to Mary Catherine, see what she has in her trunk. 
but they know that about me. And you know what, now the staff has started bringing in clothes, mm -hmm. you know? And we have this closet in the emergency department because social work provides that for our patients, but not during, not if you're not in the nine to five window. So when you're at three o'clock in the morning and you're trying to help somebody, or like a mother who's been the victim of domestic violence and it has blood all over her shirt. You don't want her to go home to her children looking like that. You hope, you know, and it's all about giving people dignity and really right. advocating for them and giving them a sense of that they don't have to be other, yeah. you know. Um, and that's what we do, you know, and I've seen the change in the staff from what I do, you know, it, but it is constantly <coughs> the big joke, you know, well, I'll ask Mary Catherine. I, like anyone else, can become street just like what I work in, you know, but then there are times when I'm like, hey, yep, the street stops here. This isn't the street, my friend, you know, because... What, what, what kind of behaviors are you... Cursing, yelling and screaming, you know, threatening people. I mean, the cursing is the thing that I adapted, you know, because I always learned in, in counseling, like, talk like the people that you work with, and that can be, that's great, but it doesn't really work in the convent. <laughs> totally. I mean, it does. They, they allow me to, you know, do what I do, but it's, it's a little bit... Um, yeah, so anyway, sometimes the staff will yell at each other, you know, and it's like, oh, people, because you just get so caught up in the energy and, mm -hmm. the, and, and the way it, it becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think that you're spending 12 hours a day in this, in this environment, 40 hours a week, sometimes it becomes more than what you spend anyplace else. Sure. Yeah. You know, and it does become, the, that's the way you see the world, yeah. which, which has been an important, um, it's an, been an important learning for me too, because it's, you know, initially my prayer wasn't as large as it is now. And my prayer has grown significantly because I have had to have that as the anchor to maintain who I want to be as a religious woman in this environment. You know, I had a younger woman religious from Chicago who works in the, who works in hospital ministry, and she said, how have you been able to do this for 20 years? You know, and I said to her, it's my prayer, mm -hmm. you know, and I need that. And like I've said to the sisters I live with, like I need at least an hour to an hour and a half in the morning of quiet in the chapel because every other part of my day is just bombarded if I'm, if I'm working clinically. Yeah. And unless you can afford yourself that, uh, it's really very hard to maintain who you wanna be. Yeah. You know? One of the goals that I know that I kind of, that I hold and I probably talk about too much to my uh, Jesuit brothers is like, how do we actually become friends with the poor? You know, mm -hmm. because that's that's mm -hmm. nice to say, and I love mm -hmm. how it sounds. But mm -hmm. trying to look for spaces for it to honestly happen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is hard. Right. So it it, it is, um, and but again, it's being neighbor. So and it's happened for us actually through my ministry because I do minister so closely to where I live. Um, so for instance. Um, 
a gentleman came into the emergency department in handcuffs at 4 o'clock on some Tuesday morning and he said to me, you're my neighbor. And I said, I am? And he said, yeah, I know you. And he, I was like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking like Mr. Rogers, like everyone's my neighbor, okay. <laughs> Until like he was like, no, remember the day with the trash cans? And I'm like, he is my neighbor. <laughs> okay. Actually your neighbor. He is my neighbor and now I'm fearful. So I've never done this with anyone in handcuffs, but I yanked the cop, the partner that was with the police officer that was with the patient in the room. I yanked him into another room and I'm like, I don't ever ask this question, but he is my neighbor and I need to know what he did. And so he goes, oh, ma'am, don't worry. It was a real nuisance thing. He goes, he turned off the electricity on its tenants and its unlawful eviction. And and we tried to give you know give him an out, but he wouldn't. Yeah. I was like, okay, I, you know. And the doctor I was with was like, I'll take care of him, you know, because I went back to the desk and I'm like, oh my god, like that is my neighbor, you know. And he goes, you want me to take care of him? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want him to think I'm afraid of him because then, you know, I I can't lose any I can't lose any footage in the in the neighborhood, you know. So um, I took care of him. That was fine. And about three weeks later, I was out cutting the grass, and this man goes by with a bunch of cans. And I said to him, wait a minute. I said, I have some cans for you, because we always collect the cans. We're all about the environment and recycling. And so I gave him my cans, you know. And he said, oh, thank you so much. He said, I actually use these to pay my electric bill. So I said, where do you live? And he was, he was one of the tenants in the building where the electricity had been cut off. So we got talking and stuff, and Jimmy is now a big friend of ours. And actually, when we cook every night, we cook a dinner for Jimmy, except ham. He doesn't eat ham or pork. Um, but we cook an extra dinner. We get the aluminum tins. We warm it for him before he comes. Oh. You know, one Christmas, he had shared with us that he didn't have a refrigerator, and so we got him a refrigerator, and, you know, so Jimmy's become like part of our family. We've had him in for dinner, and that's been a real awareness for us. And, you know, it's like even we sat the other night to do our house budget, and I was like, you know, there are five of us living here, but we're really cooking for seven because our volunteer takes dinner for lunch the next day. And we cook for Jimmy. But then the other thing that we do is I've also gotten to know two homeless women, an 87-year-old and a 67-year-old, who are mother and daughter who live in a truck. And I've been friends with them for four years. Um, and the truck is parked near you or the, all over the place? all over the place. Um, the truck is beat up and duct taped together and probably doesn't even have a good registration on it. God only knows. I got to know Mildred, the mother, when she came in as a patient in the emergency department. She was this little old lady with long hair tied back in a bun and NYPD, the police, had brought her in with EMS because she was living in a truck in the middle of a uh, really heat wave. It was like 100 degrees, but also they had a lot of animals in the truck. Um, so there's two people and animals in the truck? Yes. Like and what kind of animals? D dogs are what they had, but they also had cats. And I'm not sure because I did ask the police like what was in, and they were like, you don't want to know because there were like, 
some animals hadn't made it, some animals had died, the, the ASPCA was called in, it was like this huge thing. And my family would laugh at me because I am not an animal person. I'm not Franciscan, okay? <laughs> I am not an animal person. And um, like the fact, like it just, like the fact that these people have animals is like, okay, like really foreign to me that you would be homeless because you can't leave your two dogs. But I have tried oh, yeah. to get their dogs fostered. I've tried to, you know, I really tried to help them get into some sort of shelter, but we can't get that to happen. So we meet them in the street. And so frequently, you know, I call when I'm going shopping and I say to them, okay, like, what is it you need this week? And, you know, Benavita crackers and peanut butter. And I have learned so much about homelessness and my house has learned it too. So much about homelessness because of them. Okay, so for instance, they love hard boiled eggs and they have to be free range. So, um, <laughs> We don't need free-range eggs, okay? We buy the cheapest eggs, you know? But but you can't do a whole dozen in the summer because they'll go bad. You can't give them water, a lot of water in the winter because it'll freeze. You can't give them liquid laundry detergent because it'll freeze. Right. You know, like so many things I've learned. I, I frequently joke, like I'll be, I'll be able to be homeless at some point because <laughs> I'm learning all the tips. So originally they were in our neighborhood, mm. okay? And I knew when that woman came in, I had seen her the night before at the truck, but I never knew that, okay? And you thought that's their truck and they're going to go to their house somewhere. I thought it was a little bit odd that like this elderly woman was putting the back door down. But then when I saw her the next day, like I knew exactly where mm. she lived and all of that. I convinced her to stay in the hospital. Um, because she really needed medical care. And I went to the truck and left a note for her daughter because her main concern was that her daughter would come back and not find her and not find the animals and all that. So when I went back, I had her write the note. When I went to the truck with the note, I was petrified to go because the ASPCA was still there. And I was like so petrified. I was like in this stance, like I am bolting at any moment here, okay? And I talked to the guy from the ASPCA, and I was like, yeah, I'm really not an animal. Like, there was a shoe on the top of the box truck, but I was afraid it was a cat, you know. I said to him, like, oh, I'm really not an animal person. And he goes, ma'am, they're all God's creatures, whether they got four legs or two legs. And I'm like, I, I understand that, but I just have a real fear. <laughs> um, about two, maybe three years ago, um, the daughter was hit by a car on a rainy night with the two dogs, and one dog was killed. And she was taken to North Central Bronx. Um, she w had a head injury, and all she kept saying was, North Central Bronx, North Central Bronx, Mary Catherine, get me Mary Catherine. Mm. So I got a phone call one night um, from one of the doctors saying, um, we think we have one of your homeless women here. This woman keeps saying your name. Do you know? I said, yes, I do. I was here at Praise and Worship, and I said, I will be right over afterwards. So I went over to work, and here she was, Mary Catherine, Mary Catherine, Mary Catherine. They were so sick of hearing my name. And I walked in, and the registration assistant stood up and said, Mary Catherine is here. And like all these people from different behind different curtains like looked at and I was like, you know, I said to her, I go, Susie, and she had a note that was written by the police 
that the truck was on Bedford Park mm -hmm. and one of the dogs was killed and the other dog was okay, you know, because my concern now was where was her mother? Yeah, now her yeah. mother's alone, it's February, you know. Um, so I went and got the mother, I brought the mother to the hospital. <laughs> the mother said to me when I got to the truck, she goes, I'd, I'd offer you to sit in the truck with me, but the dead dog was on the seat next to her, and I said, oh, that's okay, you know, <laughs> I'll stay out here. And so I brought the mother to the hospital, and they talked and everything, and that deeply moved the staff. The staff now supports them. Yeah. And when I worked the night shift, I, I let them know when they come in and take their shower in our sexual assault room, and, you know, I bring in the towels and my blow dryer and shampoo and all of that for them. But my house has gotten very involved with Mildred and Susie too. Because like for instance, on Christmas morning, there are very few places open to eat. So we make breakfast for them on Christmas morning and right. things like that, you know. So, so that's the way we've gotten. But really, if it wasn't for my connection, either at work or from knowing our neighbors, you know, we, probably, yeah, yeah. we would have no idea. And you wouldn't, you, know. you wouldn't know uh, about the poor because you don't know the poor. No. Yeah. No. Right. Tell me about where you live, how, how, how you live. So I live with three other sisters, um, all of whom are above the age of 73. Um, the oldest is 86. Um, so I, there's a big jump in m my age, which is about 20 to 30 years younger than them. Yeah. Um, and we have committed ourselves to community. We are house of hospitality. Um, so we have dinner every night together. We have right after dinner, we do dishes and then we sit and have communal prayer, which is where we share our day. Um, the oldest sister goes out to the homebound in the parish because if our local parish has been merged into mm. another parish, which puts a huge distance between the elderly people in our area and the church. So she goes out and, and brings the Eucharist to them, which I steal from here at Fordham. <laughs> um, and um, the, uh, the other two work in school in school ministry. So they go out and they have contact with people and you know they bring those people to their prayer at night. I bring my mm -hmm. people from work to my prayer at night and it really is a rich sharing of of who we are as Presentation Sisters. Yeah. Um, and that to me is the reason I can continue to live in community because we have that commitment to community. Right. And so we do things you know we do things together um, they could drive me crazy, you know. It it takes them twice as long to do what I can do, and like you know, I'm sure I drive them crazy because I am like on the go, and frequently they're like, "You're always running around, you're always doing stuff," and I want to help them, you know. Sometimes invite them to think about what it was like when they were like 50, you know, like mm -hmm. what was like life like for you you know yeah. I, I know it feels different now but what was it like for you um, and frequently they talk to, to me about my need for balance you know and uh, then I say well what what are things that balance you 
you know, let me share some of the things that balance me. Mm -hmm. You know, and like he being here at Fordham is something that balances me. Uh, do you spend much time in the Belmont area, the Little Italy area? I do. You know, the, Bel it, the Belmont area always really intrigues me because you walk down Arthur Avenue and you know that you're protected. You walk like a block or two blocks, you know, on either direction and you know you're in a different world, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's the beauty and the, the, um, the richness of the Bronx is that you can have that experience, um, but you know, I, that experience has always invited me to think about um, being other. Because when you walk in either direction, it's sort of like we're not in Kansas anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And like when I walk with my friends in those neighborhoods, you know, my friends from Franklin Lakes, New Jersey and, you know, million dollar homes when we're walking, she's like, are you sure this is safe? You know, I'm like, don't worry, these are my people, you yeah, know, yeah. and my friend Joanne turns to me and says, are you sure they know that they're, <laughs> your, they're your people? I'm like, they know that they're my people, you know, because I'm their people, Yeah. you know, and I would feel, com I feel comfortable with them. So they know they're my people, you know. But it's that kind of richness and the diversity of culture that we have in the Bronx, really. I mean, when you think of the number, the Albanian, the, the Pakistani, the, the Indian, I mean, there is so much diversity, the Hispanic and Hispanic from different, you know, lobbed yeah. into one, but Dominican Republic versus Puerto Rican versus South American, you know. Yeah. Um, really, there's such richness when you get to know a person's story. And that's really the invitation is to get to know people's story because yeah. then you know who they are and then it, you realize that they're another person just like you. This episode of Belmont Voices is edited by Jason Cannon with original music, as always, by Paul James Prendergast. 